From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Haq. Welcome to a brand new episode of For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Rabina Ahmed Haq. This week, we heard from Statistics Canada and inflation is actually coming in lower for the month of January than what was expected. And even better news, inflation is now in the Bank of Canada's target range, which is between 2 and 3%. So this data was released on Tuesday from StatsCan, and it says that things like groceries, travel, and gasoline are all bringing that inflation number down. And economists were expecting an increase of 3.3% year over year, so it's much lower than what was expected. And that is really good news because the Bank of Canada has been aggressively raising interest rates to deal with out of control inflation, which was at one point a year and a half ago at 8.1%. So it did its job. Those higher interest rates that we have been suffering through did its job. But these numbers do require a little bit of context because I'm sure all of you listening are thinking, well, life doesn't feel cheaper. Everything still feels like it's really expensive. So remember, this 2.9% number that they're comparing prices to when they do when they release their inflation data, it is a basket of goods, what they cost last year compared to this year. So they do that math and they say, okay, that same basket of goods is costing us now 2.9% more. You'll remember back in January of 2023 that we were paying elevated prices compared to the year before. So we were coming off that record high inflation or near record high inflation of 8.1%. We hadn't seen inflation that high in 40 years. So we're comparing these this inflationary data to data from a year ago when prices were already higher. So it's not like prices have come down. That's not what inflation is telling us. It's telling us as those price increases have slowed. And that is really what we want to see. We wanna see the economy, prices, the cost of living go up about two to 3% and wages to also increase at that rate so that we can keep up with the higher cost of living. Wages have also been going up, uh, not as fast as inflation, but they have been going up faster than they have in the last 10 years. And so that is helping some Canadians. Unfortunately for many, uh, it's those who are already in a higher income bracket and they already can afford this these higher prices, uh, but it's making it easier for them to afford even more. Uh, and that does that does create a problem because if you have individuals who already have some savings and some investments and then you pay them more, that can stoke inflation too because then they go out and they buy things uh, in the economy. They might buy things for more than uh, what they did that what what they expected to, and that of course pushes inflation up higher. But this is good news. Uh, you know, regardless of everything I just said, this is good news. Uh, economists are expecting that we could see an interest rate cut from the Bank of Canada as early as June. Desjardins, the economists there are actually expecting five rate cuts in 2024. So that could put us in a much better position when it comes to being able to manage 
our mortgages, which is part of inflation as well. So when you raise interest rates, you actually raise the cost of borrowing and that stokes inflation. So um, if interest rates were to, to be cut, that would also bring inflation down because immediately the cost of borrowing would go down and less money would be going towards paying for things like your mortgage, your line of credit debt, and all of those things that um, CPI data looks at when they when they decide what inflation is for that month. So this is something we will be watching. Um, we get the next Bank of Canada rate announcement in March, and we'll see how this impacts uh, what they're going to be saying. Uh, the expectation is that they will hold rates where they are at 5% and that we will not really see a rate cut in well into 2024, almost June or July. Uh, if that does happen, that's great news for the record number of mortgages that are coming up for renewal in the next uh, year and a half. These are the fixed rate mortgages that don't uh, have, uh, those don't have any correlation with uh, the interest rate or prime rate, but the reality is, is that their terms are expiring in a much higher interest rate environment. So five years ago, they were able to negotiate a rate in some cases, two and a half, even less uh, with their bank. And they've been paying that lower rate at a fixed rate for the last five years. And so now when they go to renew their mortgage, uh, they will be renewing in a much higher interest rate environment. Both fixed rates and variable rates have come up. And so you will have to adjust uh, your family's uh, bottom line. More money will be going towards your mortgage. Uh, the best advice, which I've been giving since we started talking about mortgages, is if you can afford to do so, if you've got a fixed rate mortgage at a very low rate, make those lump sum payments because it will make a huge difference uh, when you do uh, finally, do do go to renew your mortgage, uh, whether it be this year or next year, because even if there are, say, Desjardins economists are right, and there's five interest rate cuts, uh, it's not going to be anywhere near where it was even uh, a year and a half ago. We have a wonderful show coming up. After the break, we're going to be speaking about the RRSP deadline, which is this week. Uh, February 29th at midnight, if you want to get your contribution in uh, to count towards your 2023 tax year. If you want to lower your taxable income for 2023, that would be an excellent way for you to do that. Well, you will have to get that in before uh, before the end of the month. And later in the program, it's Black History Month, and we'll be speaking to the author of Black and White, An Intimate Multicultural Perspective on White Advantage and the Paths to Real Change. And he says companies are actually cutting back on DEI programs and that this could be a real risk to the company's bottom line. All those stories coming up. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. The deadline to make an RRSP contribution for the 2023 tax year is this week, February 29th at midnight. Many of you might be wondering if putting some extra cash into your retirement savings is worth it. After all, there are so many other expenses that continue to increase. To talk about what we should be doing this RSP season, we are joined by Christine Van Cowenberg, Head of Financial Planning at IG Wealth Management. Hi, Christine. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. 
This RSP deadline, I cover this story every single year. People do get pretty anxious about it. They, you know, look back and say, I didn't fulfill all the the, the, the goals I'd made for myself. I didn't save as much. What should Canadians be considering at this time? If they're looking at that deadline and thinking, should I be doing something, putting more money into the, into my retirement savings? Well, the best case scenario wouldn't be to leave it quite to the last minute and to speak to a financial planner in advance just to make sure that you're making the right decision. Now, I think a a lot of Canadians know that they do want to make a a contribution because they want to make, you know, have the tax deduction on last year's taxes and get the tax refund. But it would be better to sit down with a financial planner and do some projections in advance because for some people, RSP contribution is the right thing to do. For others, it may be TFSA um, in other cases, you know, it's best to sort of make smaller contributions uh, monthly. It, you know, it really depends on your personal circumstances. So, uh, and you also want to make sure you don't, you, you have sufficient unused contribution room. So I, the, the best strategy is to sit down with a financial planner and, and take a little bit of time to think about it. But if you don't have that time, then yeah, I do recommend that you try and make a contribution this week. Uh, if, if you already know that you will be getting a tax refund and it makes the most sense for you. Yeah, that's good advice. I mean, if if it can get you a little bit more money back, then you can kickstart your RRSP for uh, savings for 2024 if you use that money to put right back into it, uh, which a lot of us don't. A lot of us spend the money on other things, but that's a, that's a conversation we're going to have a little bit later uh, right uh, today. But I wanted to talk about this survey that uh, IG Wealth Management did, and it talks to, to, to Canadians across the country. And I was surprised to hear that 72% of uh, us, 35 plus, actually contribute to our uh, to our RSP or have put money away for uh, for retirement. But you're saying that even though so many of us are putting money away, we're not really doing it with any sort of plan. Talk to me a little bit about what, what the issue is there. Well, I think a lot of the activity revolves around some of the discussion we're having today, which is, oh my goodness, it's the end of February. I want to get that tax refund. I know I'm supposed to save, so I'll put in some arbitrary amount into my RSP based on what my unused contribution room is. Um, I'll frantically make a last minute contri- you know, contribution and that, that's my retirement savings without having any understanding of the context in terms of, is that gonna be enough? In some cases, you know, it might actually be too much. People are saving too much and they're underliving, so to speak. In most cases, actually, they're not saving enough. Um, they're not thinking about you know, what other retirement sources they may have. So it, it, it's not just about making a contribution for the sake of making a contribution. It's making a contribution that makes sense for you. Should it be in RSPs? Should it be in TFSAs? Um, is it going to be you know, invested in, in the right way to make sure that you're you know, earning the most on 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 your investments, and you're you're going to be, uh, you know, not overly conservative or overly aggressive in how you make that investment. You want to think about these things and plan, and make sure that your retirement savings match what your goals are. Uh, sometimes people ask me, "How much do I need to save for retirement?" Thinking I'm going to come up with some round number like a million dollars. We've seen clients who have ten million dollars, and believe it or not, they don't have enough to retire because they have so many expensive properties and children and they, you know, they travel. I've seen other clients, they've only had a couple hundred thousand dollars and they do have enough retire to retire because they have a guaranteed pension income and they want to stay home and read a book. So, you know, it really depends on what's right for you. And that's where the plan comes in because you, it's not just about making a random contribution. It's about knowing how it will meet your goals. 
The number of people I've spoken to that say, I, uh, I invest, I invested into my RRSP and I'm saying, well, what did you buy in your RRSP? You don't, inv you know, you, you put, you put money into your RRSP and then you invest it once it's in there. Um, is there still this misnomer? Like, you know, like you're saying that once I've got the money in, I've done my job. I don't really need to, I don't really need to do anything else with that money. And it's, it's just literally sitting there in cash. Yeah, I think there are a number of people who will, you know, and just put the money into a cash account or buy a GIC and, and, you know, assume it will all work out. And we really do encourage people to think long term, especially if it is your retirement savings. So if you're going, if you are in your 30s and you're putting money in your RSP and you're, you know, comfortable with the market going up and down, you're going to do a lot better in the long run if you if you invest more aggressively. Having said that, you know, as you get older, you may want to start to go a little bit more conservative. And th these are just decisions that you want to make after consulting with a financial planner so that you understand what the risks are and you know that you are maximizing your return. If you just put it in account and leave it there, um, I, you, you could be missing out on significant upside as, as the market goes up. So working with a financial planner makes a lot of sense. Uh, you sit down and you talk to them about your goals and what your income is and how much you can afford to save. But generally speaking, you know, what does a retirement plan look like? Um, is, is there a way to sort of help people understand if if the way that they're with approaching retirement savings is is the right way? Yes. So when we use our software to project into the future, we first do need a very good idea of what your goals and, and objectives are. So for example, if you want to retire at age 65 and receive $5,000 a month, that would be a very different type of, of number that you'd have to save for versus if you want to retire at age 55 with $10,000 a month. So when do you think you might retire? What kind of lifestyle do you think you would want in retirement? That you know, of course, can change over time. Uh, there's sometimes people think they'll they'll have to work a very, very long time and they'll have to save forever and then they, they do better in life than they think. Other people don't do quite as well as they think. So, you know, you do need to adapt the plan as you go along, but you do need to make some assumptions um, and project into the future and follow that plan and make adjustments every now and again. But uh, the, the plan itself will require you to engage with your financial planner and, and make some assumptions, share with them what your income and expenses may be, uh, your assets and liabilities. And then once you have all that information, the, the, uh, the software will project and work backwards to figure out how much you should be saving on a monthly basis now. Yeah, technology can really be your friend because you can do that anonymously. You can do that in the comfort of your home. Uh, it can be really overwhelming to sit down across from another person and talk about your money. So that as a first step can at least give you an understanding whether you're on the right path or not. Or like you said, if you're actually saving too much, which I've also come across where people are over-contributing, over even though they're within their limit, but they could actually be keeping some of that money for other things in their lives uh, because uh, what how much they're saving doesn't really reflect the reality that they want to have uh, in retirement. Uh, this year, Christine, is a really, really, uh, a, a really, really un uncertain year with interest rates. We don't know uh, what's going to happen with them. Many people's mortgages up for renewal, cost of living being higher, even though we saw inflation come in lower. It's really reflective of prices being elevated last year. Um, so a lot of people still struggling to pay their, their daily bills. W where should retirement savings fall when it comes to a priority, when it comes to something you should uh, be spending on? 
Well, I, I do think it is important, uh, you know, because of, of inflation to really take a look at your your projections on a regular basis. And you mentioned how you can maybe, you know, try and do some projections on your own and and, and not use an advisor right away. And I look, I, anyone can go online and get information about their health. But at some point, I do recommend that you go speak to a doctor. And if you want to go online and get basic information, that's all well and good. But uh, there certainly have been studies where, you know, people have used AI or whatever to try and come up with a projection. And at this point, it's not necessarily going to be that accurate. I still think it makes sense to speak to an advisor and make sure that your projections are correct because, you know, so much can change. And I know myself, I just recently uh, reviewed my plan and I looked at what my projected uh, holiday, you know, vacation expenses would be in retirement. And, you know, I... I looked at it and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, like that's not going to get me very much. Have you, I don't know if you booked a hotel room lately, but you know, <laughs> taking a vacation, it can be very expensive. So I talked to my advisor and we increased it because, you know, inflation is real and you need to constantly be, be adapting. And so I think because of all this uncertainty, because of the inflation, you do want to take a look at, at your financial plan. And what we also do with our plans is we stress test them. So we say, what if inflation is higher? What if the rate of return was lower? What if you lost your job sooner than you thought? So it's that stress testing that can also give you the peace of not mind that you need during a period of uncertainty. This is a question that uh, I get asked a lot, and it also is something that uh, is written about a lot, but people are always confused. If they only have money to put in one place, should they put it in their TFSA, or should they save it, in, invest it into their RRSP? Uh, is there any general advice that can help people at least make the decision uh, uh, to understand what is best for them? Yes. Well, again, it always it's the best uh, plan is to go speak to a financial advisor and, and put it into the software and get some actual numbers and some projections. But some things to think about. So, for example, um, do you think you might at some point need the money? Uh, if, if you put it into a TFSA, you can withdraw the money and then use it to you know, make a purchase, although that can be a negative thing because then sometimes people do actually withdraw the money because it seems to be more accessible. Um, are you in a higher income tax bracket? If you are, then you're going to get tax benefit if you make an RSP contribution because you get the tax deduction versus with the TFSA, uh, it grows in there tax-free, but there's no immediate tax deduction. Uh, are you going to be in a lower tax bracket when you retire um, or you know, are you concerned about getting social assistance benefits? So if you are in a very low tax bracket when you retire, in some ways, I think people think, well, RSPs are safer because I can take that money out and I won't be paying a huge amount of tax, but you might actually um, be subjecting yourself to clawback of things like old age security and things like that. So in some cases, if you're retired and you're really low tax bracket, you actually want to receive TFSA income because it's tax-free. So there are a number, number of factors to consider. Uh, sometimes people make a mixture of both. They make a little bit of an RSP contribution, a little bit of a TFSA, but um, they, you know, it is it is a very personal decision and it really depends on your, you know, your plans for the future, your income tax bracket, what, you know, how you think you might use the money and when. Christine, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week, especially as the RSP deadline is uh, just a few days away and getting us up to date on what we should be thinking about when it comes to our retirement planning. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. That's Christine Van Kalberg. She's head of financial planning at IG Wealth Management. When we come back, it's Black History Month, and my next guest wants to highlight how companies are actually cutting back 
on DEI programs and the risks that they take by doing so. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. February is Black History Month, 30 days to celebrate what it means to be Black in Canada. And there are a number of events that are happening across the country. But there is also a worrisome trend that's emerging that my next guest wants to talk about. Many companies are actually cutting back on DEI programs. Programs that were really popular and in the spotlight three years ago are now not getting the funding they did get just a couple of years ago. To talk about why this is happening and the risks that companies take, we are joined by Stephen Dorsey. He is the author of Black and White, an Intimate Multicultural Perspective on White Advantage and the Paths to Real Change. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the program. Afternoon. Good to be with you. Stephen, why is this happening? Why are companies cutting back <laughs> on, on DEI programs? I think this is, if this, if any other month, is the best time to, to talk about uh, why that would be. Well, I, I've, I've been having these conversations all month during Black History Month. So happy Black History Month to you. Um, well, there's so many different reasons, but let's go back to 2020, you know, murder of George Floyd, uh, really a global reckoning on race that really swept the world. And really, um, you know, for the most part, I would say it was, it was kind of the, the first next time since the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and that things really became, uh, everyone seemed to have an awakening around the issue of race. Um, now, of course, we had the Black Lives Matter movement that's been asking for change and, and uh, over the past 10 years. But this moment in time really catalyzed uh, individuals, businesses, government, et cetera. On the corporate front, I thought we saw, so I think, some tremendous momentum. We saw corporations making pledges in terms of doing better uh, when it came to representation and hiring and diversity. Uh, then they moved into taking real action by setting up DEI divisions and hiring senior leaders who had expertise in that area. Some even went as far as to developing real strategies uh, and initiatives and programs, developing employment resource groups and other things, um, information, training, awareness. So, you know, uh, I felt good about it. I think everybody was feeling, you know, kumbaya, here we go. Real mm -hmm. change is upon us. So, uh, so I, think we, I think we have to acknowledge the progress that was made. Now, I think where the pushback, you know, we've seen it, part of it is, I think, uh, political, right? When I say political, I mean movements that have happened uh, here in Canada and the United States in regards to uh, normal pushback against change, right? And, uh, and so we've seen that. So I think a lot of people take their cues from that, the pressure from, from different publics, from all sides of the political spectrum, all sides of the social spectrum. And so eventually, that pressure uh, weighs on some. So I, I think some organizations we've seen, you know, from school boards uh, uh, issues, we've seen from municipal governments, and then uh, obviously we're talking about corporations, some organizations, you know, trying to wrap, we were saying that DI is wrapped up, wrapped up in wokeness, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. That we're going too far, we're going too fast, right? If you ask most black people, they're gonna tell you, we've been waiting 400 years. So I don't know about right. going too fast. So that not you know, fast enough. So that's exactly right. Why don't just be patient, right? Uh, I love that one. Um, so I think that's played into it. The second part, you know, let's be real. We've had uh, an economic downturn. 
uh, here in Canada and, and across the world. So inflation, economic issues. We've seen the tech industry have to cut back, or at least that they say they have to cut back because they have to right size for the new economic realities. Um, so that's played into it. And the other reality is that not all organizations who embrace diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, maybe had, uh, didn't really truly make it a strategic imperative, right? Perhaps some of it was a little bit performative. So all of those factors gather together and you have this, you know, headwinds and pushback and which brings us to where we are today. And where we are today, a lot of this uh, is coming out of the United States, uh, companies that, uh, you know, did all the things back when uh, when uh, we were focused so much uh, more on Black Lives Matter and everything that was the fallout of everything after George Floyd. Um, what about Canadian companies? Like, how would you characterize what's happening here? Is it, or, is it the same as what's happening with American companies or are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Well, I... I talk about this in my book, Black and White, too, about the bigger picture of, you know, I, I call it the Canadian's national sport, which is pointing at the U.S. and going, wow, it's really bad down there. And, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, uh, of course, all of that stuff happened here, right? And so when we think of, of the pushback and the, the headwinds that we're seeing, it's the same in Canada, maybe at a different level, but it's happening. So last year, I spent a lot of time talking to leaders who were leading in different organizations in public and private organizations, DEI efforts, and a lot of them were discouraged, right? I did, uh, I looked at some of the people that had been leading and I looked at their LinkedIn profiles, you know, 10 months, 12 months, 14 months, you know, and all of a sudden they weren't there anymore. So what I heard was that a lot of them um, were excited to lead in these, some of these organizations. Uh, they were excited to make change happen and to be putting teams and to really be part of this transformative wave, if you will. And then when they got in there, some of them realized that uh, it was, wasn't really a strategic imperative. They weren't really gonna get the funding support they needed. Uh, and uh, leadership may uh, didn't see it as a strategic imperative where they decided that this was actually good for business, right? So. I think that's part of what's happened. Uh, like I said, some cut back and where do you cut back? You know, I'm a marketing person. So, you know, my whole career, I've heard, you know, we're a company, we're going through tough times. We're going to cut back on marketing. I think diversity, equity, inclusion has been caught up in that as well. So uh, so I think it's a mixed bag of what's going on. I just did a, a speaking event yesterday for a large corporation and they've, uh, they've totally embraced diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, mm -hmm. they've, uh, and actually I would say they've doubled down on it. Right. And so that's, uh, uh, it's great to see that. And I, I would wish that, uh, more organizations would, uh, not retreat from DEI, but actually double down because, you know, it's like, it's the data shows it diversity, equity, inclusion is good for business. It's good for the bottom line. It's more organizations that embrace it actually uh, do better in terms of share, delivering shareholder value. It's better at, uh, in terms of creativity and innovation. And of course, it's the, especially for younger millennials and, and, and younger people in retaining and attracting talent. So all the good reasons why you should actually double down on diversity and inclusion uh, practice and actually do a lot more. 
You are a DEI consultant, and like you just mentioned, you know, you you speak in front of big corporations. Uh, you talk to them about what they can do better when it comes to their uh, when it comes to DEI programs or what they can build upon. From your perspective, big or small corporation, what does a good DEI program look like? If someone's listening and saying, "I'd like to improve what we are already doing," what does that look like to you? Well, like it's, uh, I, I've said before, but I'll, I'll say it in terms first. Is it, are you, is your DEI practice a strategic imperative? And what I mean by that is, is it baked into the success metrics of your business? So you're investing in innovation, R&D, technology, new channels, new, new uh, tools, uh, and you're measuring your leaders according to their success and advancing those, including, of course, sales, right, and revenues. So DEI in terms of benchmarking and measuring your success and reporting on that in a transparent way and investing it and seeing the outcomes, those should be measured. They sh the, the measurement should be made public. And this way, and your leaders, you know, I would even say their compensation should be tied to the success. That's when you start seeing people going, wow, I really got to get behind this and deliver on that. And then that's how you're going to see more change. So those organizations who have not yet done that, I challenge them to do that because we know that once you put success metrics, you measure it and you make people's compensation directly attached to those successes, you're going to see a lot of change. That's one thing. Uh, probably I just came from a luncheon or uh, I'm on the board of the BBPA, which is the Black Business and Professional Association. We just uh, hired our new CEO about a month ago. She spoke at the Canadian Club in Toronto, here in Toronto, which has uh, been around for over 150 years, packed crowd. And, you know, uh, and she uh, challenged uh, the corporate world and said, you know, this we are one of the in-community organizations that government, corporations, academia need to partner with because we understand the communities. We understand the needs of the Black community. We understand the types of prog programs that they need. So partner with us. Come, come into, uh, partner with us so that we can actually develop programs together that better align to community needs and then uh, in turn, you provide the network and the access and the opportunities so that these uh, Black professionals uh, can actually uh, have access to those opportunities and then in internally provide them with the mentorship and the supports for career advancement. And then eventually, uh, as um, uh, Wes Hall from the Black North Initiative says, we're going to have more represent representation in leadership because we built that pipeline. So those are some of the things that we think we need to do uh, exponentially more of. And if we do that, we're going to get exponentially faster to the goals that we want, which is more diversity, more inclusion within uh, corporate Canada. We're speaking to Stephen Dorsey. He is an author, DEI consultant, and community leader. Uh, it's Black History Month, uh, and uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, what companies are or aren't doing when it comes to DEI initiatives. But outside of that, is there something that you want to highlight this Black History Month, that uh, a success uh, that you'd like to talk about uh, that, that you're, you're really proud of? Well, I think, uh, as I just mentioned, we have, um, we just... Uh, recruited a new CEO for the BBPA. And um, so it's more than just the BBPA. I, I looked at the audience today in the crowd. There was, you know, over 150 people there, uh, you know, from big corporations. And uh, and I could tell that they were really inspired by Leanne Hannaway, our new CEO. Uh, and everyone was leaving the room going, wow, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's exciting. We're going to do it together. Let's meet. 
So I think it's this re-engagement, the pushback against the pushback, <laughs> right? And uh, people seem very excited, right? In corporate Canada, and, and uh, there were representatives from government as well. So I, I think I think the 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 exciting thing is that we've made progress over the last few years, but there's so much more to do. And the fact that there seems to be a lot of partnerships that want to come together to make to to make things even better going forward. I think that's really exciting. And that's the kind of feeling and momentum we're feeling out there in the Black community and beyond. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy Black History Month. I'm really glad we were able to have you on and uh, talk about everything that's happening this month and, and things that we can do to improve for, for, for the whole year. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Stephen Dorsey. He is the author of Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to real change. Uh, talking about Black History Month and what companies can do and what they should be doing more when it comes to DEI uh, initiatives and some uh, worrisome trends that uh, some funding has been cut in the last few years. When we come back, we're going to be talking about renting in this country and how a new report by Statistics Canada says if you are a renter, you actually have a lower quality of life. I'm Rubina Ahmed Huck, and this is for what it's worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Rubina Ahmed Huck. There's a new report out by Statistics Canada that paints a really bleak picture for renters. And this is something that we talk about on the program all the time, uh, the cost of renting and how it actually is prohibitive for anyone that's trying to save to buy a home. So if you live in a big city like Toronto and Vancouver, you're paying upwards of two, three thousand dollars to rent a one to two bedroom apartment. And if you're making, you know, five, six thousand dollars a month, where do you find the extra money to actually put towards a down payment on a home? Or you'll be saving for three decades before there's enough money to buy a home in a city like Toronto and Vancouver. Now, this new report uh, finds that they uh, they talk to renters over a period of time that those who are renting, especially in places like Vancouver and Toronto, are actually experiencing a lower quality of life than homeowners. And they also feel a tremendous feeling of loneliness, uh, this feeling of uh, inflation isolation, a term that was uh, that was uh, made to really highlight uh, what it feels like when everything is so expensive. And so instead of going out and enjoying yourself or going on a date or, or go meeting up with friends, you just stay home and you're isolated from the rest of the world because inflation has made it impossible for, impossible for you to actually go out and, 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 have, and have some fun because it's so expensive to do so. Uh, the report says that younger Canadians that were surveyed in 2023 uh, are less likely to report uh, life satisfaction. So they were less likely to say that, yes, I'm feeling good about my life. They were less likely to say that they have good mental health. And so these are all really worrisome uh, pieces of data that are coming out of this report. Older Canadians, 55 and up, they are saying that they do feel better about their mental health. They do feel better about their life satisfaction if they are homeowners. Because what happens as a homeowner, even though life is getting more expensive and even your mortgage payments may have gone up, you still have this asset that is growing in value. And how many of us love going on all the different apps that are now available and seeing how much a house sold for on our street and Oh, I could get this much for my condo, or if I, you know, if I had sold a year ago, I would have gotten this, and now I, sh you know, no, maybe I'll be able to get a little bit more. I mean, these things, these little exercises, actually make us feel better about our financial situation.
situation, our financial wellness, uh, something that I always promote, that it's not about uh, saving a ton of money. It's not about becoming really rich. It's about feeling financially well, that you are doing well with the money that you have. And this report really does show that renters um, are just not able to get there. Uh, you know, we talk about Vancouver and Toronto being a really expensive place to live. That is where the major challenges are, where most people who are renting in Vancouver and Toronto are living paycheck to paycheck. They're not able to save anything after their after after their rent is uh, is paid for and their food and their basic needs, they don't have a lot of extra money to spend on other things. In, in 2021, the agency said less than 19% of Canadians reported uh, difficulty making ends meet, and that has jumped to 27% in 2023. So that is a big leap forward in the wrong direction for people just feeling like they can't pay all their bills. One third almost of Canadians feeling like they don't have uh, renters that are, that is, they don't have enough money uh, to make all their ends meet. So then you go to the line of credit, or you might borrow money from the bank, or you might borrow money from a, another source like your family members or your friends. And then, then you've got this debt as well that you have to, to pay off. So really worrisome, worrisome uh, data that really does highlight how uh, serious the situation is when it comes to housing in this country, when it comes to rental housing in this country, and how it not only is affecting us financially, but it's also affecting our mental health, our life satisfaction, and our feelings of loneliness. And this is something that the federal government is saying that they want to build more affordable housing. From, you know, from experts that I speak to, building affordable housing, especially in a province like Ontario and British Columbia, is, is difficult because of all the red tape that is, is there to actually get land developed. In places like Saskatchewan and Alberta, it's a little bit easier. But the fact is, is that you still got to get shovels in the ground. You You've got to get buildings built. You've got to get people moving in there. And then once they are in there and they start to feel like their money is working for them, then they start saving for their future. That takes years to happen. It's not something that can happen overnight. So what can happen in the short term? What can government and other um, other uh, other authorities do to to lower uh, to, to to lower rent to increase? Uh, people's feeling of financial well-being. Uh, there is a lot of initiatives out there. There's uh, rent subsidies, there's co-op living, but it's not enough. There needs to be more available to Canadians who are just struggling uh, to get by day to day. We had a really great program today. Uh, it's talking about RSP deadline. It is this February 29th at midnight if you want to get it in. My best advice would be to do it electronically so you have that electronic signature that shows that you made the contribution before the deadline so there's absolutely no uh, controversy if you're trying to claim it and, and the bank is saying, no, you didn't get it in on time. Um, but if you if you can't afford to do so this year, give yourself a break. The best thing you can do is set yourself up for success for next year. So have monthly contributions going into your RRSP that you then uh, invest into whatever product you feel comfortable investing into. And that is a much better approach than trying to all of a sudden get a lot of money in in the next couple of days. I also really enjoyed our conversation with the author, uh, with Stephen Dorsey, who is an author talking about DEI programs being cut, the funding being cut from them, and how companies risk losing talent, risk losing uh, profit by not putting more money into uh, programs. This is Black History Month, and uh, he has been speaking about this, not just this month, but throughout the year, about how important it is to keep the spotlight on DEI programs and how to make sure that companies understand how important it is uh, to put money where they know they're going to get great return on that uh, investment, which is uh, what he says happens when you put more money into DEI
DEI programs and initiatives in this country. Before we go, I wanted to talk about a story that has really irked me in the last little while. Loblaws has announced that they're going to build 40 new stores. Yes, they're going to create 7,500 jobs, but they really are saying that they've had a uh, record year and they are expanding across the country. And this comes at a time where a lot of people are very angry with grocery stores and the prices that they continue to see, saying that uh, there's greedflation happening, that prices are higher than they need to be. And with this announcement, it really really does show that a company uh, that says that, you know, they can't afford to pay their, their employees more, they can't afford to bring prices down more, but they can build 40 new stores and expand into so many other locations. It is, of course, going to create jobs. That is a positive, but it does make you think as to if a company is able to scale this much, uh, what their record profits, you know, uh, why are they not going back to the people that are currently working there? Uh, a new report also showing that two thirds of Canadians have actually switched the way that they shop. And now they go to where the deals are rather than where their loyalty is. And this year, uh, experts are saying that uh, companies are going to be really focused on loyalty, uh, offering more things like reward points and other bonuses to get customers back through the door. But this report by Dalhousie University says that's not really going to work. What's going to work is by bringing prices down, making food more affordable. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be back here next week, same time, same place. I'm Rubina Ahmed Haq, and this is For What It's Worth.